Good morning. If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 8. Second Corinthians chapter 8, we'll begin reading there in a moment in verse 16. And as you're, as you're turning there, let me, let me say, and, and, and I know that I, I, I'm speaking for every member, uh, let me say what a joy it is to actually see each other, uh, to see one another face to face, and to be with one another in the same room. And uh, I'm sure that there is some, uh, some rule breaking happening, and I'm sure there have been, there's been a, a, little, a little less than social distancing happening. As we're gathering together again, there's really no need for me to hit the highlights of the past few months. We're all pretty well aware of the many challenges that we've been facing and that we continue to face in these days. But I will, and I think that you would agree that in a lot of ways, it, it feels like a different world than it was a few months ago. And though it is the same world, and in many ways it is a different world, and we get the sense that things are changing in our world. And maybe some of us have gotten the sense that over the past few months that we've changed. It can be very unsettling. I don't like change. I don't, I don't do well with change. It makes me nervous. It makes me very skittish. It can be a great cause of anxiety when, when we see our, our normal course of existence flipped on its head, and especially when it seems like the only sounds that we're hearing in the world right now are bad. And that it's bad news upon bad news upon bad news. And only bad news. And over the past months, we've, we've been shown and told about our physical weakness. We've been shown how quickly and easily our life circumstances can change. And we've seen parts of our nation through the hijacking of real tragedy Parts of our nation slipping into anarchy and rebellion against all outside authority. It seems like every semblance of stability in our culture is being checked and shaken. And it's unsettling. Grace Church, I want to tell you this morning there's good news. There's good news. The good news, and I say in Jesus' name, Jesus is so stable. Jesus is so strong. 
He's so immovable and unchanging. He's so, so strong. He is not disturbed in the slightest by the shaking and the, and the raging of the nations. The, the fear of viruses does not move him. Shifting world economies did not touch the, the storeroom of his great riches. And when individuals descend into anarchy and threaten to take others with them, it's, it's like a little child throwing a fit. Jesus is not moved off of his throne. Not an inch. There's good news. Jesus and his work are still the center of history. His life, death, and resurrection are still able to save. He's not ceased to be strong and and mighty. He's not ceased to build his church. His goal in history is still intact. Isn't that good news? When everything feels like it's fractured. The goal of Jesus Christ for history is firmly intact. What we see in the Scriptures is still taking place. The Bible, all of it, the whole thing, it is about what God has done in Jesus to redeem a people for Himself, for His eternal glory and their unending joy. And God has not ceased even for a second in His great work. And so this morning in the Lord's kind providence, we've landed our first Sunday back in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 16. And, and I have to say, when it was first decided, whenever it was, that we were going to preach through 2 Corinthians 8, there's no possible way of knowing all of the things that, have, that were going to transpire over the past few months. And over the past weeks, even before we we knew that we would be able to meet again. The, the dates for the, t- the sermon text, they were shifted a little bit and moved around and who's going to preach when and, and, and where. And, and I'm telling you that because it's the Lord's kindness to have us here in this passage of Scripture. This text. And it's because in it, we see answer to an important question that we're all asking right now. And that question is this, what is God doing? And what is God doing in His church? Right now, in June 2020, in our world, in our city, under these circumstances, what is God at work doing? What is He doing in our lives? God has brought us to a passage of Scripture that answers that question. And that question is especially weighty in these days. Well, let's look at our text this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 16. And we're going to read through the end of the chapter into chapter 9. And we'll end at verse 5 of chapter 9. So let's look there, beginning in verse 16. Paul writes, But thanks be to God, who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he has gone to you of his own accord. We have sent along with him the brother whose fame in the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches. 
And not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord and to show our readiness, taking precaution so that no one will discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. For we have regard for what is honorable not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. We have sent with him our brother, whom we have often tested and found diligent in many things, but now even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my fellow partner, my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brethren, they are messengers of the churches, a glory to Christ. Therefore, openly, before the churches, show them the proof of your love and of our reason for boasting about you. For it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely, that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I have sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case, so that, as I was saying, you may be prepared. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, will be put to shame by this confidence. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead of you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. Grace Church, would you pray with me? Father, Thank you for your bountiful gift. The gift of your son to be our sin bearer, to be our righteousness, to be our resurrection, to be our right standing with you, to give us in him everything necessary to be reconciled to our God forever, to be clothed in spotless, perfect righteousness forever. Thank you for him, Father. Thank you for him. And oh Lord, would you fix our gaze on him this morning so that the result would be the thanksgiving and the praise of your people. Oh Lord, would you do that for us? Draw worship out of our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we began last week in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, uh, we've, we've entered a section of, of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. It spans all of 8 and 9, and it's dealing with this collection. It's, it's a collection that's intended to provide relief for the Christians in Jerusalem who are, who are suffering as a result of a, of a famine. And it's... Uh, in the first 15 verses, which is what we hit last week, chapter 8, Paul, he, he lays out a call for the Corinthians to, he says, complete this gracious work, which they had begun to do a year previous. And Paul, in, that, in those first 15 verses, he, he lays the foundation of all Christ-honoring generosity. He says in verse 9, when he writes, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, 
so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. We're going to come back to that verse at the end of the sermon, but at the beginning of the chapter, Paul uses the example of the Macedonian churches, and he does so as a means of stirring the Corinthians up. And I love the way that that Jordan put it uh, last week, and, and I'm summarizing him, but he said that Paul is using the Macedonian church at the beginning of chapter 8 there, He's using them to show the Corinthians where the fountain is so that they can go to that fountain and drink. Uh, So that they would drink from that fountain of joy. But now as we come to verse 16 and this section, it goes through verse 5 of chapter 9. As far as I can see, there are basically three things that are happening in our text this morning. First, Paul, he tells them how they're going to send this generous gift to the Christians in Jerusalem. And the second thing that's happening, Paul tells them how they're going to collect and prepare this generous gift. But then the third thing, Paul, it's going to be in verse 24, Paul, he repeats and restates the call of all the first 15 verses, and he does it in one verse for them to complete this work. And it's in that verse, it's in doing so, it's in restating and repeating that call. He states the whole point of 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. He sums the whole thing up, or he gets at the whole point in that one verse. And so, we're going to consider those three things briefly, and then I have just a a couple of application questions for us at the end. So the first thing... Going on in the text, Paul he explains how they're going to send this generous gift. So, right out of the gate, this is verses 16 to 23. The answer is that Paul he's not taking the gift by himself, he's not going alone, but rather the gift is going by means of a delegation. There's multiple people. Paul, he's, he's going to be involved in this, but Titus is going to be involved in the sending of this gift. That's verses 16 and 17. Also, there's another brother who'll be involved in transporting the gift who Paul tells us in verse 18. He says that this brother, he's, (coughs) excuse me, he's famous in in the things of the gospel and his fame has spread through all of the churches and that he was actually appointed by the churches to travel with them in administering this gift. And then there's another brother mentioned in verse 22. He's, He's going to go with Paul, Titus, and the famous brother to administer this gift to the saints. So he's telling him it's not going to go by his hands alone, but also by the hands of these other brothers. It's a delegation. There's several of them. Now, why this, this delegation? He tells them why. Verse 20 and 21, he writes, taking precaution so that no one will discredit us in our administration of this generous gift For we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. So you see, in chapter 11, a little bit after this, Paul, he's going to go on to defend his apostleship and describe how when he preached the gospel to them, he did so without taking any money from them. It was Paul's goal to keep from being a financial burden to the Christians in Corinth, and in doing so, he aims to silence anyone who would question his motives. He, he wants to silence anyone who would, who would assert that Paul's interest is somehow tied to profiting financially from his ministry. And it's the exact opposite. 
You see, that's what's going on with the, the delegation here. That's, that's part of what's going on. They're sending these men. Verse 20 says, taking precaution so that no one will discredit us. They're setting a guard. They're guarding against anyone who would discredit their ministry of this gift. They want to be honorable in God's eyes. And they want, want to be honorable with how this gift is viewed by everyone else. And they don't want to give anyone any reason to bring their motives into question, which is significant since Paul is concerned in, in this letter with defending his apostleship. Especially since they're sending men whose reputation is known and who are esteemed in the church, who are trusted and can be entrusted to ad- administer this gift with pure motives. He points to the earnestness of Titus. He calls him his fellow worker. These other men are known for their faithfulness in the ministry and and they're they're even referred to as a glory to Christ. So this gift, it's, it's not being administered secretly. This is also significant. It's not being administered behind open or behind closed doors, but it's being administered in the sight of all the churches. And it's endorsed by them in the sending of this delegation to take the aid to Jerusalem. So that's, that's the first thing that's going on in the text. Paul, he, he explains how the gift is going to be administered. That's number one. And second, Paul tells them how they're going to collect and prepare the generous gift. In verses 1 through 5 of chapter 9, Paul, he explains that he's sent those three other brothers on ahead of himself to make preparation for this generous gift. And so, the plan, so how they're going to do it, they're going to send a delegation, but, but how, the, how they're going to do this is, is that they would go ahead, these other brothers would go ahead, and then Paul would come later, possibly with some Macedonians, and the reason Paul sends them ahead is so that when Paul himself arrives in Corinth with the brothers, the Macedonians, that their gift would be prepared. So they would be ready. He writes in verse 3, he says, But I've sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case, so that, as I was saying, you may be prepared. What's in view here? Look, it's, it's not just a matter of time. This is really important. Consider Paul's heart for the Christians there. This is not a matter of time. <coughs> Excuse me. When Paul says prepared, he's not merely talking about getting it done so that things will be expedient or even so that their zeal is going to be so obvious when Paul arrives. But, but Paul wants their offering to be given as a bountiful gift, he says, not affected by covetousness. The ESV says it this way, so that it may be ready as a, a willing gift, not as an exaction. Now, we didn't, we didn't read it, but in verse 7 of chapter 9, Paul, he, he writes, each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Can, you see what Paul is after here? He's after their heart. So Paul, he's, he's, he's holding back from coming because he wants their gift to be given from a heart that is intent on ex- exhibiting the reality of the gospel. 
gospel, the, the overflow of love for Jesus that is unmingled with the temptation to be compelled by Paul's presence or, or provoked by the presence of the Macedonians or, or perhaps embarrassment from not having prepared the gift already. And now maybe there's feelings of, of guilt and like, okay, I've got to make up for that unpreparedness. I, I, I'm going to give even more. Paul doesn't want them to be dealing with any of that. He just wants them to, to, to get down in their heart where Jesus is reigning as king. To get up in there and then out of that place to cheerfully give in accord with their genuine Christ-honoring intentions. Paul sent the delegation on ahead of himself so that they would be ready when Paul arrives and that their generous gift would be given joyously from the heart for the glory of the Lord and for their joy. So those are the first two big things that are going on in the passage. He's telling them how the gift will be sent to Jerusalem as well as the manner in which he intends for this gift to be completed in them. And now, I want us to consider this third thing that Paul is doing. I said at the outset, Paul, he repeats the call of verses 1 to 15. And that in doing so, I think he's getting at the whole point of chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians. And as far as I can tell, this is the only thing, just in, in this section from 16 to 9.5, I think this is the only thing that Paul actually tells the Corinthians to do. I think that everything else, he's, he's describing what they're going to do. But what he tells them to do is what he told them to do in the first 15 verses of chapter 8. After he's told them the manner in which they're going to send the gift to Jerusalem, that is, in this very open, very above board, very visible to all, in the hands of trustworthy men, so that no one will be able to bring a credible charge against them, this very open way, look there now at verse 24. (coughs) He says, Therefore, openly, before the churches, show them the proof of your love and of our reason for boasting about you. Let me read that again. Therefore, openly, before the churches, show them the proof of your love and of our reason for boasting about you. In other words, Paul is calling them again, as he did at the outset, to complete the work they began a year ago regarding this generous gift. But, but look at how Paul frames it now. It's not just what they're doing in this verse. It's the manner in which they're doing it. It's the manner in which this gift is being given. Just as Paul describes the manner in which the gift will be sent, he points to this openness, this visible, this honorable, this above discredit way that the gift is being sent. You could say it this way, that, that since, since your gift is going in such an open way, in the same open way, in the sight of all the churches, let the proof of your love be seen. Let the proof of your love be seen by the churches. Paul says in verse 2 of chapter 9, he says that he knows of their readiness to do this work. 
And the fact that he's, he's sending the brothers ahead in regard to their being ready when he comes, that's, that's not in regard to their willingness to give. He knows that the gospel has taken root in them and he's confident in their repentance as was displayed in chapter 7. But the point now is that he wants the churches to see what Paul and Titus have already seen and know to be true. Namely, that their repentance and faith and their love for the saints is genuine. Real. Verse 24, he says, Therefore, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and of our reason for boasting about you. So now, I said that we're seeing the whole point of of chapters 8 and 9 here. What is the point? What's, What's the point? Well, let me say first what it's not. It's not merely so that the proof of their love can be seen in and of itself as though this whole thing is about them. But rather, so that the effects of the proof of their love would be produced in the watching churches. Okay? Namely, here's the point. This is what we're getting at. This is what Paul is after. It is thanksgiving and praise to the living God. That's what he's after. That's what this whole thing is about. It's what Paul's after. So so without trying to, to, to steal thunder from next week's sermon, I want you to look down beginning in verse 12 of chapter 9. Speaking still of this, this gift and how they're serving the saints who are in Jerusalem. Look there, it says, For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them all. You see, Paul told them in our text, in verse 19, he says, this gift is being administered for the glory of the Lord. Yeah, we're showing our readiness in it, but it's for His glory so that He would receive glory from this. How's He going to get it? He tells them in verse 824, let the proof of their love be seen openly by the giving of this gift. And then in 9, 12, and 13, what we just read, Paul tells them that in doing so, it will produce the effect for which the gift was intended. Do you see that? It's that they're going to see the actions of faith in the Corinthians And they're not going to say, yay, a bunch of money. We get to eat. They're going to say, praise God. They're going to say, thank you, God. They're going to say, look at their obedience to the gospel. (coughs) They're going to say, look at the genuineness of their repentance and their faith. They're going to say, look at the obedience to their confession of the gospel of Christ. Thanksgiving, praise, God glorified. You see that? That's that's what Paul is after. Because this is what God is after. This this is the answer to the question that we initially asked. What, What is God doing? What is God doing in His church? Well, the answer is He's producing in them thanksgiving and praise 
to God. I.E. worship. <coughs> Excuse me. He's opening their mouths to declare with the heavens the glory of God. He's taking the language of Eden and the new Jerusalem and putting it in the mouths of his people. Saints, this is what we were saved for. You don't have to turn there, but I want to read to you from Ephesians 1. As Paul, he's, he's unfolding the, the glorious riches of, of our position in Christ and what it, what it means to have redemption in His blood, the forgiveness of trespasses. And Paul, he writes that God did all of this. Ephesians 1.12, he says, To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. You were saved for God and you were saved for His praise. In other words, you were saved for worship. To behold and enjoy and be satisfied in the glorious One. The great King. Paul knows why we've been saved. He wrote that. He knows what's ahead. And he calls him to show the, the proof of their love openly before the church because that is going to result in praise and glory to God. And in doing so, they're going to be engaging in, in that for which they were saved in the first place. See, in every action, everything Paul is calling them to here, the way he's going to do it, all of this stuff, it's, it's, it's geared toward participating now in the joy of eternity. 9, 12, and 13 tells us what the proof of their love is producing. It's thanksgiving and praise to the God who saved us. It's, it's joy in the church and God's desire is that you would taste Jesus right now and that everybody else would see it and would praise God for it. Do you see now how everything in these chapters is, is, is serving that end? I mean, it's not just random details about, yeah, I'm going to send a few guys, they're going to take it, and it's going to get... You know, there, there's a goal here. This is intentional. Everything is intentional here. The way the gift is being collected, the way it's being sent, and the hearts from which Paul wants the gift to be given. I will, I will stay back. I will, I'm not going to come to you yet. I don't want anything to interfere with the genuine heart giving of this gift. So now, the remaining time in the sermon, I want to ask two questions and try to make some brief application. As I said at the outset, God, in His kind providence, He has us right here in this text. And as I said, I don't, I don't have to hit the highlights as to what has been going on in our world or what's going on today, right now. Some cities in our country, we're all aware. The first question I want to ask is this. 
And in light of our times, in light of the things that we've seen, in light of the things that we're seeing, in light of the things that our culture is telling us, what does the world need to see when it looks at the church of Jesus Christ? What does the world need to see when it looks at the church? In one sense, you could answer that question, the, the obvious answer, well, they need to see Jesus. They do. The world needs to see that. The world needs to see faithfulness. The world needs to see fidelity to God's word when they look at the church, faithfulness to the scriptures. The world needs to see those things. But particularly right now, what the world needs to see in the church is a church that is thanking and praising her Savior. A church that is worshiping. The world needs to see the church praising her God. The world needs to see a church that is gazing and praising. I heard, it. I heard you chuckle. Do you know why, one of the reasons why you feel so much better after talking to Rick Couples for about 20 seconds? <coughs> Excuse me. I don't know if you know why. <clears throat> one of the reasons <clears throat> is because of how little he seems affected by everything that's going on in the world. I mean that in the best possible way. He seems relatively unaffected by the turmoil of our world. And it's because he's gazing and appraising. And let me tell you, you get around him for a couple of minutes, you get around a saint who is more concerned with, with thanksgiving and praise to King Jesus. It's like sitting under a shade tree by a stream of cool water. It refreshes your soul when someone holds out to you the the pure water of praise and thanksgiving to our King Jesus. What the world needs to see is a people who are so satisfied with Jesus that we're not being sucked in. Brothers and sisters, the world needs to see a church that is so satisfied with her Savior, so satisfied with Jesus that we're not being sucked into the second-by-second catastrophe that Twitter tells us is happening every moment of every day. The world needs to see the joy of Christ because they're only seeing hopelessness and hatred and violence every single day. Not just that, but every single moment of every single day. Every second you will find hatred and violence and hopelessness and death, sin. So many churches right now are concerned with whether or not they're being seen to be in accord with the right political group or the right social cause, you name it. We ought to be concerned with whether or not we're being seen praising our God Brothers and sisters, while the world is breathing in the smoke of the fire of hell, they ought to see a church that's breathing the air of heaven. They need to see joy. 
In a world where they're only seeing hopelessness, they need to see peace. In a world where they're only seeing turmoil, <coughs> they need to see a people loving Jesus. They need to see a people loving Jesus, loving Christ. That's what the world needs to see. Our second question I want to I want to ask is this. What does the church need to see? What do, what, what do we need to see? In this kind of world, in these days, in these times, with, with these news cycles tempting us to despair, with, with politicians telling us that, that this next vote will literally determine whether we barely survive another four years or whether we're going to descend into apocalyptic mayhem. It's It's gone. With so many voices telling us to identify with this group or that group or this cause or or that cause, what do we need to see? Well, in order to answer that question, I want to head back a few verses. Steal from last week's sermon, verse 9, because without the truth of that verse, there is none of the thanksgiving, none of the praise that Paul is after would be possible. I said at the beginning, we're going to come back to this verse. It's verse 9. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And brothers and sisters, what that verse summarizes is that the king of all glory king of the universe, the owner and possessor of every atom in this universe, the fountain of, of every kind of love that Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, rich in infinite glory, though he was rich, became poor for our sakes. That is, the, the second person of the Trinity left the glory of heaven for the purpose of entering into a sin-sick and fallen world so that he might taste our poverty and more so that he would become our poverty. That he would become sin in the place of sinners and die under the wrath of God separated from the rich pleasure of beholding his father's joyous face as he had for all of eternity prior. And brothers and sisters, listen. He did so in order that the dust of the earth, sinful humanity, the kind of people who are doing the things that we're seeing all over the news, the kind of things that go on in our heads, the kind of things that we've done, the dust of the earth, sinful humanity, would have the crown of the Son of God placed upon our heads so that we would get to wear His crown and so that we would be clothed in the riches of His perfect righteousness. And so that we would be forever reconciled to to the God in whose debt we were so impoverished. And so that His resurrection, that in it we would get to taste the riches of His indestructible life when we are raised and these bodies are freed from sinning and from every vestige of death. Brothers and sisters, this is, this is what God is at work doing in His people. 
It's the point of chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians. It's, it's, it's God glorified in the worship, the thanksgiving and the praise of his people as Christ lives in and through them. He's producing in his people something that formerly was impossible. Praise. Praise. Hearts that are able to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus and say, yes, Lord, you are better than all others. You are strong. You are mighty. You are worthy. You are glorious. You're great and mighty. We will praise you. You are worthy. So this is, this is the final thought. Two sentences. I'll say these and then we'll pray. Three sentences. The praise of the church is the victory of God in Christ over the sinful rebellion of humanity. May the world see a church praising her God and may the church see her Savior who is eminently praiseworthy. Let's pray. Father, it's true. It's true. It's true. You're worthy. Your son is worthy. He's better than all others. He is worthy of our praise. And our God, we thank you that this is your work. You you are doing this in your people. You are getting praise. You're moving our hearts to worship. And in doing so, you're satisfying your people with the best of all beings. So Father, forgive us. Forgive us for the coldness that's so often present in our hearts. And Lord, we pray, especially in these days, in these times, Lord, would you bring revival Would you create praise in our land, in your church? Would you hold out that thirst-quenching water? Would you satisfy us? Oh, Lord, you are worthy. Amen.